This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is brought to you by Time Travel Tales, a new anthology of time travel stories edited by longtime Geek's Guide to the Galaxy listener Zach Chapman. Learn more over at chappyfiction.com. So that's C-H-A-P-P-Y fiction.com. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 233 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Connie Willis. She's the author of novels such as Doomsday Book, Passage, To Say Nothing of the Dog, and Blackout All Clear, as well as dozens of short stories, including Firewatch, Even the Queen, and The Winds of Marble Arch. She's won more major science fiction awards than any other author, and in 2011, she was named a Science Fiction Grand Master by the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America. And we'll be speaking with her today about her new novel, Crosstalk. And today's show is brought to you by Time Travel Tales, a new anthology of time travel stories edited by Zach Chapman, who you may remember from our Listener Strike Back panel back in episode 200. In that episode, Zach talked about how he grew up in a small town in Texas where nobody really talked about books or science fiction. And it was discovering Geek's Guide to the Galaxy that really broadened his horizons and made him want to be a writer. His short story, Between Screens, appeared in Writers of the Future, Volume 31, and in the October 2015 episode of the Starship Sofa podcast. And his short fiction has also appeared in Unsung Stories and Chilling Ghost Stories, and is forthcoming in Steampunk Universe and Futuristica, Volume 2. And now he's making his editorial debut with this new anthology, Time Travel Tales, which contains 20 stories of time travel adventure by authors such as Robert Silverberg, S.L. Wong, Tony Pye, Catherine Wells, Sean Williams, and David Steffen. And here's a description of the book. It says, From rampaging Tyrannosauruses to an army of duplicate versions of your future self, time travel is a genre where anything is possible. This anthology contains new time travel short stories, mixed with some of the best stories published this century, including New York Times bestsellers, Nebula and Hugo-nominated writers and winners, as well as some talented new authors. Though in our timeline, they're already bestsellers. So a big congratulations to Zach on his editorial debut, and definitely give it a look if you'd like to help out a fellow Geek's Guide to the Galaxy listener. And you can learn more over at Zach's website, chappyfiction.com. So again, that's C-H-A-P-P-Y fiction.com. All right, and so now here's our interview with Connie Willis. All right, so we're here with Connie Willis. Welcome to the show. Hi, it's nice to be here. Okay, and so your new book is called Crosstalk. So just tell us a bit about how the book came about. Okay, um, well, uh, you know, books are like, uh, the way I do my books is sort of like an oyster, <laughs> you know, you get this little piece of grit, and then you start accumulating stuff around it, uh, and one of the first pieces of grit was that I was on a panel at Worldcon with a um, a moderator I really couldn't stand, and the po- panel was on telepathy. Because telepathy is a big, you know, it's sort of a subgenre of science fiction. There have been lots of and lots of telepathy stories and novels through the years. Um, and uh, anyway, we were discussing the pros and cons of, of telepathy, and I said I thought it was a terrible idea that I certainly did not want anyone to know what I was thinking at any given moment. And the moderator said, "Oh, come on, come on. When have you ever not said exactly what you were thinking?" And I thought, oh, right now, right now, right hmm. this very minute. <laughs> and if you knew what I was thinking, this panel would be over. So, um, so you know, that was probably the first 
piece of grit. Um, the second was, um, as things started to accumulate around it, was just looking at our information society, which I basically have resisted my entire life. I'm being dragged kicking and screaming into the 21st century. And um, I, I was interested in how romantic people were about the idea of more and more communication, that this would solve all our problems, that it would lead to understanding and world peace and and so on. And I was like not convinced at all. I'm still not convinced. And the more I see of this endless stream of input that we get, um, there's just been all this talk about fake news, for instance, um, is that we're getting tons of information. Or, no, we're getting tons of data but not necessarily any information and not necessarily anything that helps us uh, get along better or understand each other better. And in fact, um, you know, when you can can date by swiping left and swiping right, hmm. um, I'm not convinced that really improves the depth and quality of our relationships. So anyway, I, I just began thinking about all the negative aspects of the constant bombardment and um, including the bombardment that hits me every time I turn on my email and see that I have 8,000 emails to answer, and uh, many of which are unnecessary, you know, and stuff, but all of which take time and have to be gone through, and which cause more annoyance than they do um, communication, I think. So anyway, those were some of the things that made me think about it, plus the fact that I love romantic comedies, and... Um, I love to write romantic comedies whenever given the chance. Uh, being distinct from romance, they're a completely different genre. And so um, I realized that nobody had ever written a telepathy romantic comedy and thought that I might give it a try. Right. So, so you mentioned that there's this long history in science fiction of telepathy as an idea. And you said you don't think it's it would be good in real life, but in science fiction, do you enjoy it as a... A device oh, in I love fiction? reading stories about telepathy, but but usually they don't think it's a good idea either. I mean, the the telepathic characters always end up either uh, being trying to have world domination, or blow up other people's minds or something, <laughs> or else they go mad from all the input and can't can't deal with it at all. Um, there are very few positive uh, telepathy stories. I think uh, James Smith, I think, is the name wrote a number of the the Telsey stories, and those had a young female heroine who was just growing into her telepathy. And those tended to be show it in a more positive light. But most of the telepathy stories were real negative and did not see it as, as a positive at all, saw all the downsides, So, which I uh, totally agree with. <laughs> I think, you know, our society is based on what we don't say all the time. And what, the fact that our thoughts are private and that we don't feel compelled to, we have the choice of sharing them or not sharing them when someone says, do I look fat in this dress? Or tell me what you honestly think about me. <laughs> you know, so I think one of the things, other things that inspired the book was I lived through the 70s where they had that sort, you know, they had S and all these sort of let it all hang out kind of philosophies. And I remember as a young teacher, uh, them saying, you know, when we first met for the first time, they said, oh, we're going to do some bonding exercises, you know. And uh, so we're all going to go in a circle and tell each person one thing we don't like about them. 
and this will lead to more openness and honesty and communication. <laughs> I'm like, this is a recipe for complete disaster. And of course it was. I mean, uh, let's all sit in a circle and tell what we don't like about you is not the way to achieve communication. And so people would end up in tears and sobbing and running off. And I was, at, I got my first real taste of what saying too much and communicating too much could do. <laughs> yeah, so, so you had this idea to write a romantic comedy with telepathy. And so the form that this takes initially in the book is that there's this new technology called the EED. So tell us about right. that. Right. Okay. So the EED is this, is this latest trendy thing. Um, think plastic surgery, Botox, that sort of thing. And all the celebrities are having it done. And what it supposedly does is it creates empathy. Uh, it helps you empathize with your partner. It only works if you and your partner are both emotionally committed. So it sort of serves as a kind of physical prenup also um, because it won't work and you won't be connected unless you both are emotionally committed. And um, you, but, but it's supposed to make you not t telepathic, obviously, but just empathic. And you're going to pick up your partner's feelings. You're going to be more sensitive to, to what, to what the vibes in the situation are. And so you're not, you're going to know that even though he says he's willing to go to the Chinese restaurant, he's not willing mm -hmm. to go to the Chinese restaurant. And you're going to solve a lot of, you know, you're going to have a more open relationship. It's a dumb idea and, and a, a ridiculous idea that people would agree to brain surgery just to get, you know, closer to their partner. Although, people have been known to inject deadly toxins into their skin, you know, just because other celebrities are doing it. So, so I really don't think there's any limit to how stupid people can be. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so, so your main character is Brittany Flanagan and she's planning to have this EED thing done with her boyfriend, Trent, and right. doesn't quite go according to plan. No, no, nothing, nothing in fiction ever goes according to plan. If it went according to plan, there would be no story, you know. So she uh, she ends up not, uh, after she has the surgery, which is against her, her the wishes of her very Irish, very interfering family who are dead set against this and um, and against the um, stern warnings of the, the tech genius at the company who says this is a terrible, terrible idea. They're going to harvest your organs while you're in the hospital and unconscious. Um, but she goes ahead and does it anyway and then finds that she is not connected empathically to her boyfriend. Um, in fact, she's not connected to him at all. She is connected telepathically to the genius geek guy, and neither of them are very happy about it. <laughs> And so you obviously did a lot of research, or at least it, it certainly seems like you did on telepathy to write this book, The History of Telepathy. Yeah, well, such as it is, since <laughs> it doesn't exist, you know. So, yes, uh, the history of, I, I guess you'd say, faux telepathy. Um, the, the, I did do research into the Rhine experiments. I had already been familiar with them and did some more research into them. And, oh, my gosh, they were supposed to be scientific, but a less <laughs> scientific endeavor you have never seen. Um, they cooked the data and cherry-picked the data and did everything else they could with the data and still couldn't come up with anything very convincing. Um, and I'm one of the things also that intrigued me about telepathy from the beginning was that, um, or from, you know, paranormal stuff in general, is that I'm from Colorado, and, um, and we had Bridie Murphy back in the 1950s, I think, um, and she she supposedly under hypnosis, remembered previous lives 
most notably the the life of of Bridie Murphy, who who had lived in Dublin in the 1800s, and and uh, she recounted her life in 1800s Dublin in great detail until the reporters got a hold of it and started digging and discovered that in fact all of her facts were cooked and there was no such person and the song Danny Boy which she kept singing you know as an Irish song was not written until well after Bridie Murphy would have been dead so uh, her story sort of fell apart and I don't I've never known for sure I don't think anybody's ever known whether it was a scam an elaborate scam or whether it was a you know the self-deluding people and the highly suggestible aspects of hypnotism, which we know a lot more about now. So I did research into that, and then I did research into Joan of Arc, who's my favorite person who heard voices, So, because she was so clearly not crazy. She was so clearly incredibly sane, but and yet heard voices. So I, I looked into all those things. So how do I mean you also came up with sort of some more obscure people at least to me St Bridget and St Bega of Tehran how do you come across those sorts of people in history You 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 just look and look and look um the history of hearing voices among saints is pretty common and uh and I of course was specifically looking in this case since my heroine is Irish for Irish saints and uh but the idea the whole idea of of hearing voices was not thought of in the same way as it is now i mean nowadays if you hear voices people immediately assume that you're schizophrenic and probably rightly so um but uh back in the middle ages that was not the case that was con- considered that you had a direct line to god and and uh the attitude was very much different and i have i have my explanation for that in the book um which is uh a theory that I'm not I'm not the only person who shares that theory but but it is uh, it's just a it's just a theory so and I like I say I don't I don't think I don't know what was going on with with Joan of Arc but um but I really I I found no evidence at all of actual telepathy and I don't you know the these elaborate experiments the Rhine experiments where where at the most you could send an image on a card, you know, like a star or a wave or something. Um, that that doesn't count. Telepathy is useless unless you can actually talk to each other and send complicated messages, you know. And so um, I found no evidence of any of that. And in spite of some friends I have who are convinced <laughs> that they have had telepathic connections with other people, but not me. I don't. I don't buy it. Well, like in the book, it it references this story where a girl in Nebraska supposedly heard a drowning sailor in the North Atlantic, and they right. met, and there were all sorts of right. details that matched up. What do you make of those sorts of accounts? You know, I made that story up, obviously, uh, that specific story up, but there are lots of stories like that. And I, you know, who knows? Uh, there are there were dozens and dozens of people who claimed they heard uh, crying, sobbing, help me voices. Uh, when the Titanic went down, but none of them, as it turned out, ever said anything about it until after the Titanic had hit the front pages. So they're, you know, they're undocumentable. Uh, and people, yeah, people have strange, strange experiments. The brain does very strange things. I don't, you know, I don't know. I, but I found, like I say, I found no convincing evidence for, um, and, and yeah, are there unexplained instances? Yeah, maybe, just like there are with uh, near-death experiences, which I explored in another book, um, 
passage and uh, and came to pretty much the same conclusion that this is the brain doing all this, not not other influences. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, you mentioned that the the protagonist is Irish, and you sort of suggest that there's this connection between being Irish and paranormal right. abilities. Was that just right. completely whimsical, or was there? No, I mean that's there's a long history of the Irish claiming they're psychic and and having second sight and so on. That that goes all the way back, and so I, yeah, so I played on that, <laughs> and I'm part Irish, <laughs> but I don't. Uh, I don't know, you know, it is it is a part of the tradition of the Irish people. And if anybody would, might have been, you know, if, if telepathy actually had existed in the past, the Irish were a very isolated people, especially in the western counties. They were, um, you know, the, the last bastion of civilization during the Dark Ages. And the monks on the Skellig Islands on the far, far west coast of Ireland were the people who basically kept civilization alive, but that meant also that their that their gene pool was not integrating with the gene pools of the rest of Europe. So if anybody could, you know, have preserved a tele, if there is a telepathic gene, and if anybody could have preserved it, it would have definitely been the Irish. So at least according to my theories, but I make up theories all the time for my stories. So. Well, in the book, you actually reference a specific gene, the R1BL21 gene. Is that an actual gene? No. Okay. No, it's like there there are genes like that. The redheaded gene is very similar to that, and it is a very there. If if there were a telepathic gene, it would be that sort of gene. So yes. <laughs> so. <laughs> Are you really disillusioned? Were you thinking I was on to something? <laughs> no, no. I mean, I'm a total hardcore skeptic, so I, I, <laughs> I don't accept telepathy at all. I just thought, I, I was just curious, uh, you know. Uh, how far my research went. Well, you know, you want to make it look as, as plausible as possible. And it, and it you know, I, I once wrote a story about my theory that Shakespeare was actually Marlowe and that the two had changed places and then Shakespeare had accidentally been killed, et cetera, and Marlowe took, took his place in his life. And I love that theory. I don't really believe it, you know, but I think it's fun to make up conspiracy theories. I, it, I'm, I'm reaching the point where realizing how gullible people are at buying conspiracy theories of all kinds, um, it gives me some pause. But I, I try to make it clear that these are fiction and not, you know, not in my real life. I don't spread these in my real life. <laughs> so. Well, because it's funny, one of my favorite Tim Powers quotes is he talks about how he comes up with the, all these conspiracy theories for his books. And he says, there's always a point in the middle of research where you start to wonder, you start to come across things that right. seem to confirm your theory. You say, oh my God, maybe, maybe I'm onto something here. That's true. That is true. I and mean, actually, when I was doing the Shakespeare story, I, um, I was using a whole bunch of actual lines from Shakespeare in, as dialogue in my story. Um, and um, I thought, you know, it would be fun to use some Marlowe lines also and sprinkle those through. So I went and looked up a Marlowe commentary and looking up keywords that I had looked up before for Shakespeare quotes and found, and, and found almost identical Shakespeare quotes and went, oh, I've made a mistake. Um, I must be, this must be a Shakespeare commentary by someone named Marlowe. And then I double-checked, and no, it was a Marlowe commentary. And these lines, there were so many lines that were just exact copies or almost exact copies. And at that point, I got very nervous. I was like, <laughs> maybe this really did happen. Maybe Marlowe really was Shakespeare. So, 
yes, there's always that point, <laughs> but I try to resist that. <laughs> so. <laughs> well, it's funny, actually, speaking of conspiracy theories, because uh, in the intro to The Best of Kanye Willis, you say there was a conspiracy theory making the rounds on the Internet a while back that there were actually two Kanye Willises, one who wrote the funny stuff and one who wrote the sad stuff. Right. That's right. Yes. And I, I don't understand that. I've never understood that because to me, well, Shakespeare wrote comedy and tragedy. I'm not comparing myself to Shakespeare, but, but no one had any problem believing that he could write the comedies and the tragedies. I don't see them as very different. I mean, in, in the way you write them. Um, and I don't understand why people would assume that if you wrote one thing, you could only write one thing. But, but I think part of that is, in modern day publishing, so much emphasis is placed on the brand, you know, and so if your brand is, is serious time travel stories, then you shouldn't be writing comedy. Or if your brand is comedy, you shouldn't be writing something serious. And so, but I like to write all over the place. And so, you know, that has never really suited me. I think that's where that conspiracy <laughs> theory came from. But my, I, there are actually two Connie Willis's now. It's very frustrating to me. Um, well, there are actually three. There's a Connie Willis who's a screenwriter, and you occasionally see her name flit by on the credits of various movies. That's not me. Um, and I don't, but I don't mind that if people confuse me with her. Um, but the other one is a co-host on uh, the late night talk show Coast to Coast, and she's a psychic, and she's had past lives, and she's maybe been abducted by aliens and all these things. And I'm like, that's not me. And I've had several people confuse us and and say, I heard you on the radio talking about how you were a psychic. <laughs> and I'm like, no, 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 no. And it's very frustrating because science fiction writers, people get very confused anyway. They often confuse us with the people who actually believe all these kinds of things, you know. Um, and And we try to explain, we're fiction writers. We write science fiction. But um, but there is that idea out there that science fiction writers actually are like Whitley Stryber, you know, and believe all this stuff. So uh, I find that extremely frustrating. I never was bothered particularly by the conspiracy theory that there were that I was writing one person writing the comedies, one person writing the tragedies. But but this one bothers me because <laughs> <laughs> and most especially because the other day I was um, doing a speech over at a college and was introduced in the introduction, they put some of this stuff, and that was when I first found out about oh, no. this, this other person, and went, no, no, that's not me, and the last thing you want to do is to be contradicting the person who's introducing you, you know, but in this case, when she got to the, and she herself is telepathic, I, I had to <laughs> rise up and say, nope, not me, uh-uh, no, sorry, so, so yes, it is a little frustrating, but yeah, no, when I'm I was... Sure Keep that straight in your interview. That I do not believe in telepathy. <laughs> I just write about it. <laughs> no, yeah, no. When I was researching, you know, interviews with you for for in preparation for this, I came across this other Connie Willis, and I, I was going to ask you, yeah, do you ever do you have people just contacting you now uh, to help them find Bigfoot and stuff like that? Yeah, it's, uh... <laughs> no, I've never had that, but I have had a lot of people. For I realized um, before I discovered this person that a lot of people would say to me, "Oh, I heard you on the radio the other night." And I never thought anything about it because I'm, you know, I'm frequently interviewed on the radio. So I, and I never know when those interviews are going to be on, you know. So I assumed, oh, that was NPR or something. And <laughs> I was on. Now, of course, I 
hasten to ask them where they heard me. <laughs> <laughs> hasten to set the record straight. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. Yeah. All right. So getting back to Crosstalk, I wanted to ask you, because the book is dedicated to Mary Stewart, and I was just curious why yeah. that was. Oh, I love Mary Stewart. Uh, well, first of all, Mary Stewart wrote a great uh, novel about telepathy called Touch Not the Cat. Um, and it's, it's, well, it's probably my favorite telepathy novel of all time. It's just terrific. Um, but um, but she, was, she wrote these, this series of, oh gosh, I don't know what you'd call them, um, I guess modern gothic romance adventures, maybe, um, where you have a young woman, she's on vacation in the south of France, or she's on vacation in Corfu or something, and she gets involved in a mystery and is endangered and in peril and so on. And if these were mostly written, well, she, she started writing like in the 1950s, so, so many of the girls are doing these things in high heels and, and, uh, bouffant petticoats, which is, makes it really difficult for modern young readers to read. But, um, but they were always very, you know, plucky heroines and smart and, and, uh, and did not, and not stupid. I mean, they weren't Nancy Drew, you know, intentionally going down, um, sneaky, well, I mean, creepy stairways and stuff. You know, they were, they, they didn't get into trouble on purpose. They, they were dragged into mysteries of not, of their own accord. And once they were in them, they behaved very intelligently and in try, trying to get out. Um, but they were, they were just terrific. And they, they raised that, that genre had been around, but it had been very badly written. And Mary Stewart and Daphne du Maurier basically raised the, that genre writing to a level where it was, could be taken very seriously. And I have just always loved Mary Stewart's books. And she, um, has many, many, many fans. <laughs> you know, that's one thing where pe a lot of people have talked to me about that dedication and going, I love Mary Stewart. I'd never met anybody who'd read her before. So she, she was just a terrific writer and, uh, and her writing was beautiful and her plots were marvelously constructed. And I always really admire, admire that, especially plotting because no one, no one knows how to plot. <laughs> so. So I, I'm always very impressed when I see somebody whose plots just run like clockwork. I mean, are there other novels about telepathy you think you were drawing on? I mean, there was a little bit to me, it seems, of The Demolished Man in this, this idea of kind of filling your head with nonsense to prevent people from right, reading your thoughts. Right. Well, that, you know, I mean, that uh, Alfred Bester's Demolished Man is the classic in the field. That and I would say um, Robert Silverberg's dying inside which is about a man who has been telepathic his whole his whole life and has used the power kind of to further his own ends but now is is aging and is losing the power um which is a great book i'm not really sure it's about telepathy i mean it's ostensibly about telepathy but really i think it's about any any creative power that you have that you know you're no longer <laughs> possessing or that you're starting to lose um anyway terrific book um and and the Alfred Bester idea that of of getting too much input and going mad from the input is you know that's been in that's been around in the telepathy stories um, since the very beginning and it's always a problem because you know you when you fantasize about telepathy you always assume that you would be able to listen to you know whoever you wanted to whenever you wanted to but that you would be somehow in control and I think the truth would be that you you know, would be the victim of, you couldn't go to Starbucks anymore. You couldn't go to the theater. You couldn't go anywhere where there were large crowds of people. And even if you were safely at home, 
I don't know, you might have to listen to your dog's thoughts, which is not a good idea, <laughs> or um, we might find that they're not nearly as devoted to us as we thought they were, or, or to our cat's thoughts, and we might find out that our cats actually slavishly adore us but are just too reserved to say anything. Who knows? So, but I think, you know, we would always be around. I'm not sure, you know, we would ever be able to control what we had. So I think that's an essential part of, of talking about telepathy. Right. Well, like there's a scene in the book where a character is subjected to the uncensored thoughts, the horrible uncensored thoughts of all the people around her. And I was wondering if reading internet message boards had helped, uh, helped you. <laughs> oh, no kidding. No kidding. It's a cesspool out there. I, she says, uh, the, the hero says that repeatedly about uh, people's thoughts. And certainly, if you want to think well of your fellow man, the the Internet message boards are not a good place to go. I'm always just amazed how quickly things deteriorate from civil conversation to, well, Hitler, and then, and, and then uh, screaming and horrible um, misspellings of, <laughs> of, of swear words. I think the misspellings of swear words are intentional. Uh, to get so you can get them past the censors or the algorithms, but the but the other misspellings and the grammatical errors are enough to drive you crazy. So, yeah, people. I don't know what it is when people are not accountable when when they're when they think they're anonymous or they think they're alone or something. It's not pretty out there. So, yeah. Well, I mean, one one other technology you propose in the book is the sanctuary phone. Which yes. like has all these tricks to help you avoid talking to people oh. you don't want to talk <laughs> talking to. Talking to people, yes. yes. Is that is that something that you would like to have yourself? I would love to have that. Yes. Yeah, I think they're you know we we just we're at the mercy all the time you know of now we actually want some kinds of communication. I mean. You know, we want important messages. If someone has broken a leg, we want them to be able to get in touch with us. And I, I'm not, you know, against the information age. When our daughter lived in England before cell phones, and it was awful because she didn't have a phone at her apartment. And we uh, had to call every Sunday at a certain time. And she would be standing in a payphone ready to take the call. And that was the only communication we could have. Now, we had one other number that we could call in if someone died, you know. But basically, I kept thinking, oh, my God, some terrible thing could happen to her on a Monday, and I would not have any way to know until the following Sunday. So obviously, you know, the information age has been great for that. Facebook and Skyping and just the cell phone has just been wonderful. But at the same time, when I was on vacation at Thanksgiving, um, you know, there there were several things, business things about that I was involved in that would never have come up before because they would have said, oh, we can't reach her. It's Thanksgiving. You know, she's away from home, so it'll have to wait till Monday. And all the business in the world would have shut down from Thursday to Monday. And I think that was a better world, <laughs> you know. Uh, so last year, our daughter was trying to buy a condo, and we were standing in Kinko's in Santa Fe at 6 p.m. the night before Thanksgiving, faxing papers to her realtor because they because there is no there are no days off there are no holidays there is no time when you are not accessible to the rest of the world and uh, so th those aspects I think are are not good I think 
I think part of our problem right now is that we're living in a transition world. You know, we're not living in a society. We're living in a transition to whatever the society is going to be. And we're dealing with these endless um, changes. And the minute we adapt to the cell phone, along comes the smartphone. And the minute the smartphone comes along, we know that something else will follow it, which will be very different from that. We'll have to adapt to that. And the driverless car and everything else. And so we're, we can't really formulate any new societal norms until the society stops changing so radically and so quickly because we're still in transition. And I think that's part of where all the frustration comes from, you know, um, because I remember when the cell phone first arrived, there were all sorts of breaches of propriety and everything. And then that kind of people kind of worked that out. You know, they kind of got that all settled. Um, but then, of course, the next the next big thing came along and then they needed to work it out again and then again and again and again. And I, I think that's partly why why we behave so badly. I mean, obviously. Eventually, we'll work all this out. It's just hard living through it. <laughs> well, it's funny because speaking of your daughter, because uh, recently my mom asked if I got if I could turn on this thing called Find My Friend on my phone, so that if she, uh -huh. if she was ever wondering where I was, she could just look at her phone and see where I oh was. Oh my gosh! Oh my gosh! Terrible and, idea. <laughs> well, and the thing is, like, Dave's mother wants that. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing right. is, you know, fifteen year, fifteen or twenty years ago, I would have thought that that was so weird. And these days, I'm right. kind of like, eh. Why not? You know, yeah. like Google knows what I everything I do, and the government knows everything I do. You know, right. at least my mom can know what everything I do too. Sure. Well, sure. And I, I think, I mean, obviously, you know, well, while, while my daughter was in England, that was during the the um, IRA bombings, you know, and I would have loved to have that feature on a <laughs> cell phone so that not so I could track her every move and demand to know what she was doing out so late or whatever, but just simply so I would know that she wasn't at the site of the bombing, you know. That would have given me tremendous relief, and I'm sure that's what your mother is thinking. So, um, yeah, I, it's it's a very different kind of yeah. We have different ideas about privacy and different ideas about things. I the the one of the reasons I have Maeve in the book is because you know I think kids, the parents, oh these helicopter parents, the the new information age has given them so much more um, control over their kids. And kids need, I think, a certain amount of space and freedom and privacy and respect. And uh, and I, I see these parents who just, they literally do want to track every second of their child's life. And, um, and the kids really are fine if they just leave them alone, you know. But because uh, I always think kids are way smarter than adults think they are. But, uh, but yeah, the, the whole... You know, I understand, you know, the parents don't want their kids kidnapped by some horrible stranger. But on the other hand, they're not allowing their children to breathe either. So that's a problem. Well, yeah, but so so what I wonder is because it seems like there is going to be telepathy in the future with technology, right? I mean, I've, I've talked to various people on this show who say that with fMRI technology, you're basically going to be able to read people's thoughts probably within I, a decade or two. Uh, I totally disagree. Oh, really? Oh, Yeah. The fMRI is nothing. I mean, the most they've gotten, okay, so you use an fMRI and you, and you say, think about something. And I think about something and you see a picture of a bird, okay? It's a very blurry image of a bird. Okay, so maybe the bird will get clearer, you know, and maybe you'll get it highly refined. But what are you thinking? What exactly are you thinking about it? Are you thinking, oh, there goes a bird. I just saw a bird. Or I'm looking at the TV. 
an image of a bird, or I'm thinking about a bird that I saw yesterday, or I'm thinking about the Philadelphia Eagles, or I'm thinking about a car named after a bird, or I'm thinking, <laughs> I'm thinking, I hate birds just because I'm a totally paranoid person, and the birds, the birds, they're <laughs> after me. Or I'm thinking about Hitchcock's, the birds. I mean, what do you, how do you translate an image into the sophistication of what we really think, you know? Because we don't think, we don't think in images. We think in in words, and they're very. That's why we have language, is because our thoughts need to be way more complicated than just ooh bird. You know, we need the language so that we can say and think all these different kinds of things about birds, attitudes about birds, memories of birds, hopes for birds, uh, wishes and dreams and and uh, paranoid fantasies about birds. And I don't see how any that we have any technology anywhere close that can decipher that i, I mean just, i you know I, I interviewed an author named kara platoni and she wrote a book called we have the technology and she spoke to some researchers who thought that this was going to happen that they were going to be able to read out your in, inner monologue using fmris really? okay well but there are people who think that we're going to be immortal in 10 years too. <laughs> that the singularity Crazy. is going to happen in 10 years and i never find any of those convincing um, you know, when the computer first came along, I was told, oh, my God, the computer's going to revolutionize the novel. You're going to have these incredible novels with amazing interlocking plots and clever, you know, just unimaginable, um, you know, techniques will be used. It's going to revolutionize the novel. It has not revolutionized the novel in any way except for the worst because people can type so much more easily than they used to be able to. So I, you know, I just, I, I'm always very, the thing I'm always most skeptical about is technology. Not, not that the technology won't do amazing things, but that there are always going to be side effects and unintended consequences to every single technology. And that the, the rosy hopes and dreams that everybody has for it are are pretty much assured either not to come true or to come true with a really heavy price that nobody thought of. Say the automobile, for instance, <laughs> which was a great idea and did revolutionize the world and certainly made tons of things possible. And the side effects did not become apparent for years and years and years. And now it's killing the planet. You know, so I just, I, I think I, futurists for some reason always always have this very rosy view of the future as though as though all the previous technologies, all of which came with huge disadvantages and huge side effects and huge unintended consequences, that those rules will be suspended regarding this next technology. Because huh, I, I can't help with it. You know, years ago at a convention, I saw um, Joe Haltman on a panel. He was talking about his book, Forever Peace. Uh -huh. And he was saying that he thought that if there was some sort of telepathy technology in his book. And he was saying that he thought that if you could really get inside someone else's head and completely understand them and how they got to be the way they were, that you would not be willing to kill them and that that would be the end of war. Uh, oh, interesting. And I think you might be more apt to kill them. <laughs> I think you would be, okay, that's it. You're out of here. <laughs> I thought there might be some redeeming quality in you, but I was totally wrong. So yeah, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, 
Yeah, Joe is usually as much a skeptic as I am, but um, and that and maybe certainly certainly the more we know about other people, the harder it is. You know, once once I do think that, in spite of current events, um, that that are getting to know people all over the world, you know, are being able to to Facebook and Skype and everything with people all over has made a huge difference in our understanding that you know we are in our inability to view people as the other you know or as the enemy because you realize well but i have a friend i have a friend over there and you know and they're just like me and they they love hello hello kitty just like i do you know kind of thing it does make it where you know you realize that we're all people and and we all have feelings and it's it's less easy to demonize them or i would have said that before November, <laughs> uh, that it was less easy to demonize them and get away with it. I think generally that is true, and we're moving in a direction where better understanding is making that. I'm not sure telepathy is required. I think good old-fashioned talking to each other is probably sufficient. So, yeah, well, because I was thinking about you know if, if there is going to be this telepathy technology in the future, you know, if we'll just stipulate that. I mean, it does seem like um, it makes it very hard to tell stories then because I was, I was thinking about trying to tell a story in a you know there's the demolished man i guess but like in a society where everyone knows everyone else's thoughts it seems to me to kind of obliterate pretty much everything that we think of as drama because almost all drama is depends on a character not knowing what another character is thinking except uh, i would bet you let's say telepathy became um the norm and we could we could easily know what other people were thinking. The first thing that people would begin to do would be to attempt to stop that for themselves at least. They would try to build barriers, mental barriers or physical barriers, I don't know, tinfoil hats maybe <laughs> or something that would prevent other people from being able to read their thoughts because it is so essential to to not have people read your thoughts. Um, you know, you can't, I, I don't think most relationships could survive if you knew virtually everything that flitted through the head of your partner. I don't, you know, because there are times when you're furious and ready to kill them. And, um, and those are better left moments that you can leave unsaid. With telepathy, you wouldn't be able to leave them unsaid. Um, if you are trying to, you know, the stock market would immediately crash because everybody would know I mean, we'd all be insider traders to the max, you know. There'd just be so many things that could go wrong. And I think, so I think the very first thing that would happen would be that people would, would attempt to reverse it, at least for themselves or in certain ways so that you weren't, weren't open to everybody, you know. And, you know, if we think it's bad that you can have stalkers on the Internet right now, you know, and that people can find out where you live and go stand outside your house and it's really, really creepy, think how creepy it would be if they could get in your head. You really don't want Charles Manson in your head. And I think society would go to enormous lengths to prevent that from happening or once it happened to stop it immediately from happening. So, yeah, I, I just... I, I just don't think we would ever, you know, be able to tolerate uh, a society in which we all knew all the time what we were thinking. But, I mean, I don't think there's any question that if people living today suddenly all became telepathic, civilization would collapse overnight. But I, I do wonder if, you know, 100 years from now, if people for 100 years had all been telepathic and everyone had no memory of, no living memory of ever living any other way, if society would find some new equilibrium? Or do you think that's just impossible? I don't know. Well, I mean, maybe, 
maybe, but there would certainly be there. It would certainly not be a society that looked anything like ours, because our society is totally based on the fact that that all kinds of things are private. And and uh, and I know there's been all this. There have been all these articles about how the internet has destroyed privacy, and you know, and and people don't care about privacy anymore. And there's a totally different you know uh, attitude toward privacy. But the the truth is that uh, that it hasn't extended very far, and and we still have vast areas of our lives which are private, and which people want to keep private, you know, and um, and go to extraordinary lengths to keep private. And so I think that uh, you you if you had a you know we don't like I don't ever guard what I'm thinking, you know. I guard what I'm saying, but I don't guard what I'm thinking. I would have to begin to behave in a totally different way if I also had to guard my thoughts and be careful what I thought in the presence of others, you know, um, at all times. And that would be a very different, that would be a very different society from what we have now. So, yeah, I mean, I, anything is possible. And, of course, I love speculating about those ideas. But, um, but for me, when I speculate, let's say if I speculated, sure, telepathy had suddenly become, you know, universal, Everybody was, maybe not suddenly, but, but over the years, society had become completely telepathic. I would always be looking for what are the, what are the drawbacks? What are the unintended consequences? Because they're always there. And they're always more interesting than the actual technology itself. <laughs> um, all right. So, like, the book also has little quotes uh, before each chapter. Yeah. I was wondering if you could just talk about how you picked those or why you wanted to include those. Um. Actually, I love including those because they're, first of all, I think when people are reading the book, they just read right past them. That's for the reader the second time through um, or for the reader the many time through. Um, Mary Stewart always did that. Um, she always had fascinating quotes, which did not seem to be related to the story at all, but which later, if you go back and read them, are are very much related to the story and offer clues. Dorothy Sayers did the same thing. And um, and I think it's a, a lost art. I, I love doing it. I do it in almost all my novels. So, I mean, a couple of the quotes are from the TV shows Primeval and Sci-Fi. Oh, my Alice. favorite television show ever. Yes, yes. Anybody who knows me knows that Primeval I adore and and proselytize about <laughs> all the time. It was a BBC show, um, five series, five seasons, five you know short British seasons, and. Um, and it was about, it, it's the dumbest premise of all time. It's, you know, dinosaur hunters in modern day London, basically. Uh, there are these gaps or rips in time, which the, at first they're from the distant, distant past and, and creatures are able to come through and, and, uh, threaten London. Um, and the team, a team is formed. Somebody called it the A team with dinosaurs, which is probably fair, except that it was just, the reason I loved it was that it was, so well written and it had such great plot ideas and I could not figure out the plot and I can <laughs> always figure out the plot. I always, you know, see it coming from miles ahead because I spend so much time, you know, plotting myself and dealing with plots. And so when I can read something or watch something that I cannot figure out, um, I'm just, I'm in awe. I'm so impressed. And uh, it had great acting and terrific, funny dialogue and lots of irony. 
they knew how to do romantic comedy plots, which nobody knows how to do. And it was just a great show all around. And and it had a, an actual ending so that you watched the five seasons and you got a satisfying ending for all the characters, and which I found the most impressive thing of all. Because <laughs> TV so frequently, you know, just dies. <laughs> and then And then you're left wishing you hadn't watched it at all because there wasn't a decent ending. So... Or they screw up the ending, like in Lost. And so you want you want uh, you want a good ending, and this had a good ending. So, so yes. So I push Primeval whenever I can. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I haven't seen that one in or or Sci-Fi's Alice. Is that do you recommend that one as well? Oh yes, very much so. Uh, Nick Nick Welling um, has done several um, literature related things. He did one called I think it was called Just Neverland, and it was uh, about Peter Pan before he became Peter Pan, um, and and Captain Hook before Captain Hook became Captain Hook, and then um, and, and his first one and the most famous was called Tin Man, uh, about a, a, it's a, a an interesting kind of reworking of um, uh, Wizard of Oz, and uh, so Sci-Fi's Alice was a it, it was a, a mini series where a, a modern day Alice returns. To Wonderland, and it is it is much more a dystopian, you know, um, what 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 Wonderland would have become under the reign of the Red Queen, and very much a dystopian science fiction landscape, and just and a and very clever ways of working in all of the things from Alice in Wonderland and through the Looking Glass, uh, but in a totally new context. I just absolutely loved it. So, and I and I hate the new. Alice in Wonderland, the Johnny Depp and the, you know, uh, Alice in Wonderland, which I think tried to steal from Sci-Fi's Alice, but Sci-Fi's Alice with a very low budget and very pathetic uh, special effects just really outdid it, I thought. Yeah. No, I, I didn't like the Johnny Depp one either. Um, yeah. But uh, actually, speaking of uh, dystopianism, uh, you mentioned that you were more sanguine about humanity prior to this most recent election. And uh, I saw. I am never sanguine about humanity, (laughs) ever. So we always stand on the edge of the abyss, always, and it's always a miracle that we don't pitch forward into it. Uh, Let's say I just became a little thought we got way closer to the edge here uh, with this last election. Yeah. Yeah, you said on your blog that America handed the one ring to Sauron, and now all hell is about to break loose. Yep. Yep. And I have not changed that opinion since uh, in the two weeks or three weeks since I wrote that, uh, particularly since uh, watching watching what's going on with Taiwan and uh, watching the sort of random, um, you know, uh, tweets and the the sort of the the fact that um, he said the other day at one of, at this rally that he had, he said. Um, I had no memory at all of of ever saying that I would rescue car- Carrier and keep them from leaving the United States, which I found absolutely terrifying. And I think, you know, I, we've it's a bull in a china shop, and the reason we have that metaphor is because valuable, fragile, wonderful things will get broken and cannot be put back together again. And I do, I'm very, very frightened. Yep. Really frightened. More frightened than I was two weeks ago. Yeah. No, that's not true. I'm just as frightened as I was two weeks ago. 
because I, 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 I thought this is what was going to happen. So. Mm. But you did talk on your blog about how you, you, you've researched London during the Blitz a lot for various books and stories yes. that you've written and that you feel like you are able to draw um, inspiration from, from that experience, from surviving that right. experience. Right. Which is, you know, the, the, it's, it's a little different because that was a threat from outside. You know, this is a threat from inside, so that makes it different. But um, although London had its threats from inside, there was... Um, during the 30s, there was a ton of uh, pro-Nazi sentiment. Uh, Mosley and and his gang and the Duke of Windsor and all those people were very pro-Hitler. Um, so yeah, uh, so the situations are a little similar. Um, um, but you know, the, I think I think the main thing is that people tend to the ordinary person tends to think, oh, there's nothing I can do. There, what can I do? Um, the thing I was going to do, vote, that didn't work, so what else is there? And that is simply not true. When I wrote Blackout and All Clear, my World War II novel, I, it was so clear that every single person played a vital, a critical uh, role in the war and that every single person doing their bit, that the British attitude of do your bit was was absolutely the right one because you had no way of knowing who, which person, which action was going to be the important one. And I think that's always true in history. History uh, not only is always at the edge of the abyss, but it, it always is balanced on a knife's edge. There's always one tiny little thing that can make all the difference in the world. And it almost always is just an ordinary person. Um, history tends to focus on the, you know, kings and armies and stuff. But uh, the truth is that that so many things are simply the result of one person's action uh, or inaction, you know, at a critical moment. And uh, the um, in the French Revolution, uh, Louis the Sixteenth was heading for the border. He and Marie Antoinette were in a coach headed toward the border, and they got lost in the woods. And um, and they stopped to ask a peasant for the way, you know, which way to go. And the peasant told them. And the king handed him a tip, uh, a coin, and the peasant looked at the coin, realized that the face on the coin was the face that oh, he was geez. looking at, and turned them in. And uh, they didn't make it to the border, as you know. <laughs> they ended up on the guillotine instead. You know, and that's just such a minor, you know, this peasant changed the course of history, you know, and uh, and... So the history is full of those examples. And so I think the, the worst thing is that people for is for people to despair and to say, oh, there's nothing I can do except hunker down and, and not, not watch the news or something. Um, instead, I think everybody needs to do their bit and they need to, and they need to fight for what they believe in and, and they need to, to feel as though they can make a difference because they can. Right. I mean, when you're talking about the One Ring and Sauron, that makes me think of one of the things Tolkien said that I thought was really wise, where he said basically that you would have to be omniscient to know for sure what's going to happen. And since right. none, of, none of us are omniscient, we don't know for sure what's going to happen. So despair is never uh, rational because there's always, right. no matter how hopeless things seem, you don't know that there isn't hope. That's right. I mean, you just, you never have... Uh, and and Tolkien speaks with great authority because you know he he lived through World War One, 
Um, he lost all of his best friends at the Battle of the Somme and, um, and said later that he, he based the Dead Marshes, you know, that awful scene in the Dead Marshes, on, on the Battle of the Somme. Um, which, when I read that, I was like, of course, that makes perfect sense, you know. So uh, he, he definitely had been in situations where despair would seem like the rational option, you know. How many people died at the Psalm? 60,000 or something, you know. So uh, in night, far more nightmarish situations than any of us alive have been in. And, uh, and yet, you know, he didn't, he didn't believe in despair. So, yeah, I'm, I'm totally with him. <laughs> I and I and I get very upset with the people you know who who do despair because no that that doesn't accomplish anything so I have I had a button made a one of the keep calm buttons I'm wearing it today it says keep calm and fight on <laughs> and I've been passing them out to all my friends so yeah well and speaking of not giving into despair on a slightly later note I was wondering if you could tell your story about how you got eight stories rejected in one day and thought about giving up writing Oh, okay, that's not really a light story, but <laughs> <laughs> well. uh, uh, it is in retrospect, but not at the time, not at the time. Yeah, I, uh, w when I was first starting writing, I, the first um, eight or so years, I wrote completely in isolation. I didn't know any writers. I didn't know the science fiction community existed. Um, I didn't know anybody. Um, and so I would would write my stories and I would send them out and they would get rejected. And we lived in a little mountain town which didn't have mail delivery, so you had to have a post office box. And uh, so I would, when I would buy my stamps and my manila envelopes and things, I would always buy well in advance. Um, and I would, you know, buy not only the the uh, envelope and the stamps for the to send it out and the self-addressed stamped envelope, but also for the next time I was going to send it out. And I would usually even address it in advance. Like I'd send, I'm sending it to Asimov's, but I'm also uh, addressing the envelope to Analog for when it comes back from Asimov's. You know, I was always fairly pessimistic about my chances, and rightly so. So, um, and I would get stories rejected, but. It wasn't too bad because I would say, oh, well, this story was rejected. But in the meantime, I have this story at Omni, and it's really good, and I know they're going to take it. And then by the time the one from Omni would come back, you know, I would say, well, that they rejected that. But I have a new story out at Asimov's, and I have this other story out at FNSF, and, and they're going to buy those. But this one day, I walked up to the post office and I um, with my dog, and I uh, I there was a pink slip in my uh, mailbox and I assumed that it was a present, you know, that my grandmother had sent me or something. And so I went up to the desk to get it and it wasn't a present. It was all of the manuscripts I had out, every single one. There was nothing that I could say, oh, but this is still out. They're going to buy it. And these were all stories that had been rejected multiple times. Um, and some of them I had nowhere else to send them. You know, they'd gone through the entire gamut of, of, publications. Um, and so I picked up all these manuscripts and started home and thought, you know, this would be a good day to quit. This God is trying to tell me to quit here. Um, and that was always, you know, that's always a danger for writers because you, on the one hand, you have to have this incredible cockiness that other people want actually want to hear what I have to say. You know, they actually want to read these stories that I make up. And then on the other hand, if you're too cocky, you 
you never improve, you know, because how can you improve? You're already perfect. And so you never, you're, you're never going to sell that way. So you kind of walk this kind of balancing act. And um, so, so I walked home and seriously did think about quitting, getting my teaching certificate renewed and going back to work and just giving up on this. And then, but I had all these self-addressed stamped envelopes already ready to send out. So I thought, well, I'll just send it out one more time. And I didn't really feel anything but despair at that point. I mean, I didn't really honestly think any of them would sell. But I sent them all out again in their new envelopes. And I, and one of them, one of those did sell. And then that kept me going until, until I was able to sell some more and stuff. So, and I think eventually all those stories did sell. Um, I'm not sure, but I think almost all of them did. So, which was good. And the best part was walking home from the post office with my dog was when I got the idea from a letter for a letter from the Clearies, which was uh, the story that was kind of one of my breakthrough stories. So, so it all worked out great, and now it makes a great anecdote to tell. But at the time, it was pretty awful, and I really, I really did almost quit. And I always tell that story because. Because, you know, I, I think that writers, they do reach moments of despair when they, when they really could quit. And they should know that other people have had that same moment, that that's not abnormal and that it doesn't mean that you should quit, you know. So on the other hand, there's a, a motto, somebody, some famous writer said, uh, all famous writers are people who are too stupid to know when they should have quit. <laughs> and so I may fall into that category also. <laughs> just was too dumb and too unwilling to waste those stamps to to know that I should have quit that day. <laughs> um, all right, so Connie, so we're all, all out of time. So just finally, do you want to just say uh, what you're working on now, or is there anything else you want to mention? Yeah, um, I'm working on a new story about a mysterious bookshop. I love mysterious bookshop stories. Uh, and I'm almost done with this one. And um, and then I'm also working on a new uh, novel about uh, UFO and UFOs and Roswell and alien abductions. And it will be a, a road, you know, road pictures. I think it will be kind of a road picture book. So. So so where will that story? Where can people find that story? Uh, the bookshop story will be in Asimov. Yes. All right. Great. So, yes, yeah, so everyone keep an eye out for those. OK, and... thank you so much. And thank you for having me today. Oh, yeah. Yeah, thanks so much. We've been speaking with Connie Willis, and this new book, again, is called Crosstalk. So, Connie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Connie Willis for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to Andre Kohut, who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue... Please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time or fixed monthly contribution, you can do that via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. And I want to give a special thank you to David Taylor, PayPal patron number 75, who writes, Hi, David. Thanks for the Sean Otto interview. We just donated again via PayPal, and here are a few thoughts on a superb episode. Thank you, David and Geek's Guide, for arguably the best and undeniably the year's most important episode. Sean Otto, already this hippie's personal hero for his film adaptation of The Beautiful House of Sand and Fog, offers a trenchant and damning critique of the powerful who deny science and gut democracy. If just for this episode, David and Geek's Guide now rival Democracy Now!'s Amy Goodman and Rolling Stone's Matt Taibbi, 
for honest, recent, and inspiring coverage of the devastating implications of America's idiocracy. Listeners, if you needed a final justification to financially support Geek's Guide, this is it. All the best, David Taylor. So special thanks again to David Taylor for that really nice letter and for continuing to support us via PayPal. And again, if anyone else out there wants to sign up, you can do that over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. I'd also like to thank listener Zach Chapman for sponsoring today's show. Remember to check out his anthology Time Travel Tales over at chappiefiction.com. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.